Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Welcome back, everybody. All right. I've got three uh, three education stories here, a couple of jab-related things as well, a little bit of audio to play toward the end of that. And then I've got a little portion of a book that is free online on PDF. And ironically enough, it's this particular book is also on the CIA's website. And it's one that I've referenced in the past and one that I've read uh, many years ago. And it's even more relevant today than ever before, but I highly recommend that people read it. And I'll get into that book a little bit later because, of course, Disney is in the news with Disney going um, completely woke more than they already are, but they're not even bothering to hide it anymore, which is rather interesting, I think. So, as far as education goes, let me jump right in here. This was tossed to me by Cicely from New Mexico, who has been a guest on the show. And she, of course, left the education business, and God bless her for doing it. She would not wear the mask, refused to take the jabs, was tired of being bullied, and said, forget it. I'm going to homeschool my child, and that's the way it's going to be, and they've never looked back. So God bless them for it, and they sent me this particular article, always relevant when it comes to whistleblowing. It comes from uh, krqe.com. And it's titled, Las Vegas Teacher Alleges She Was Fired for Whistleblowing. Now, I've mentioned whistleblowing on a regular basis on this podcast before I get into this article. And I, of course, was one. There are many. And uh, the business of whistleblowing is is one of those subjects, again, that occurs on a daily basis within American K-12 schools. And it's the whistleblowers who are, again, typically the most morally sound people within any working environment. So people need to understand again, and I've written about this at length in all of my books, but specifically within the book, Violence Among Students and School Staff, the the business of adult bullying and bullying in the workplace is constant, Um, again, in particular within K-12 schools and certainly within higher education. This is also one of those subjects where when an individual is training to be a teacher, very rarely to never. Are they instructed on all of the research that exists regarding bullying in the workplace, again, specifically within K-12 environments? They just assume that all of these people who work in these environments are going to be adults, and they're all going to get along, and they're all just going to have nothing but uh, students' best interests at heart, and that is not true. Uh, the, the bullying does not just exist, again, between students within these environments. It is between the employees themselves, and it's disgusting, and it's awful. And uh, there are certain states, of course, that have more bullying-related laws and harassment-related laws than others. But I, again, if you, if you still work in these environments, I highly recommend looking up what those laws are, what those codes are regarding bullying and harassment within the workplace, and using them to your advantage. And again, one of the things that I've written about on a regular basis when it comes to whistleblowing or the way that a person is treated within a workplace is you have to document everything, every single day that it happens. The date, the time of day, the location within the environment, the names of the people involved, what was said and then how it is that it made you feel at the time. And you keep all of this information constantly. Uh, I I myself did it constantly when I was a school teacher. And um, when when it was all said and done, I I must have had at least 250 plus pages of information on the people that I was working with because the things that they were doing and the way that they were treating students was beyond disgusting. So... Back to this story here again, we're talking about Las Vegas, New Mexico, and it says, quote, a former high school volleyball coach has filed a whistleblower lawsuit against Las Vegas City Schools saying she was fired for speaking up about coaches harassing female students, something her attorney hopes sends a message to the other districts across the state. Quote, gender bullying and harassment of students in high school athletics. Those days are over. Those adults that abuse their positions of power over students need to be held accountable, said attorney Jacob Chandarella. No way on that one. 
let's see. It says former Robin Robinson Robertson High School head volleyball coach Stacy Fulgenzi says in April of 2019 she was approached by a female athlete on the tennis team who told her they were being verbally harassed and treated unfairly. Uh, Fulgenzi says she went on to send an email to district administrators about the allegations. Three weeks later, she says she was demoted and moved to the middle school. Then in November of 2019, she was fired after a school fundraiser. She claims it's because the money raised was not deposited into the district account within 24 hours, something her attorney says is bogus. It says, quote, because of the same time, because at the same time, they claim my client violated this 24-hour turnover policy. Another male coach in the district did the same thing. In fact, held a fundraiser and didn't turn the money over for at least a week, her lawyer said. Uh, it wraps up here and says the lawsuit is filed against the superintendent and the athletic director, who is Fulgenzi's ex-brother-in-law. And her lawyer, Shandarella, Shandarellia, says that it is not what is motivating the lawsuit. Quote, the timeline in the case clearly illustrates that the motivating factor for the district's retaliation was my client's whistleblower. Three days after she first blew the whistle, she was demoted, and within months, she was fired. She is seeking two times the amount of back pay and other damages. The coach is also asking to be reinstated, but she is now a coach at West Las Vegas High School. KRQE News 13 reached out to the district for comment, but has not heard back. Okay. What is interesting about this is this really is a direct case study on bullying within the environment, within a school environment. When an employee does what they're contractually obligated to do by reporting, again, harassment, mistreatment, whatever it is, to district officials, the district officials by by law, based on their own contracts, are supposed to investigate. They're not supposed to squash it, they're not supposed to keep it quiet, and they're not supposed to move the person who's making the allegation. They're supposed to just investigate. And if that again means you talk with this particular teacher, you ask for names, documentation, what was said, XYZ, then the right thing should happen. The problem is, is that this story exemplifies what happens nine times out of ten, which is you will have the entire school district squash it, keep everything silent, uh, move a particular teacher, again, who is making the allegation or making filing the complaint, basically, and uh, the, the actual abusers themselves just remain. Again, even if students themselves were being harassed or bullied or physically hit or whatever it may be, in many cases, the district covers that up too. Why is that the case? Because public image is their number one concern and always has been. I've said that on numerous occasions. It, it is not going away. What is interesting about the time that we're living in now, however, is that they're trying to justify their public image now because their public image as an entire business and profession is so disgusting that they have to do whatever they can now to rationalize their own disgusting behavior by calling it inclusive or equitable and all these other words that they use. I mean, that's the environment in a nutshell. And it's remarkably horrible, again, that Excellent teachers and morally sound individuals are treated this way within the environment. They turn to all the appropriate people that they're supposed to. And yet, unfortunately, the individuals who are above them in the so-called chain of command don't do what they're obligated to do. Again, both contractually, which of course is a legal document, so they have to do it by law. Not to mention, again, child endangerment, harassment, these things are crimes. And when these school environments and the administrators who, who participate in such activities, teachers included, I mean, you can pick anybody within the environment. When these kinds of things occur and the right thing does not happen, uh, you know, th that will weigh on the mind of the individual who has exhausted numerous outlets and has done everything that they believe that they're supposed to do. 
Um, you know, I feel bad for this teacher clearly, but even them leaving the school district and finding a job somewhere else, you know, that's that's relatively common as well. And then they show up at a, you know at another school environment and they say, well, why did you leave? And they say, I mean, the the best thing to say in those situations is just be honest. It was a bullying environment. There was a lot of bullying going on. And uh, there were people being picked on constantly and being yelled at and whatever else. And I, I wanted nothing to do with it. I reported it. And then I was the one that got moved. You know, it's sad, but this, again, is one of the reasons why it is the degenerate environment that it is. The people at the top know each other. They protect each other. In many cases, they sleep with one another. They're related to one another. And the nepotism that runs up and down the entire profession, um, in particular within a specific, you know, within specific districts, it's unfortunate again because we hope that the people within these positions are are going to do what they're supposed to do, and what they're supposed to do again is crystal clear. But they just don't. Many of them just don't. Um, they, 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 the last thing that they want is to have any kind of a public lawsuit. The last thing that they want is their names in the paper for anything negative. And again, I've been over it before in the past on numerous occasions. This is exactly when they start dishing out, you know, dishing out awards for one another. And all of a sudden an administrator receives some kind of a humanitarian award or an abusive teacher receives a teacher of the year nomination or wins teacher of the year and xyz it's it's um it's a lockstep process but again as as simple as this article is it it really is a perfect snapshot as to what goes on within these environments uh and and how the individuals who are being targeted for doing the right thing are actually treated so Again, it's it's remarkably sad that that's the case, but it's it's more common than you could possibly imagine. Uh, here's the next one. This comes from the Gateway Pundit, and it's titled, Pennsylvania Judge Orders Five Democrat School Board Members Immediately Removed Over Mask Mandate. Now, I like this uh, for a variety of reasons, as you might imagine, and uh, everybody should like this. Before I start reading this, there is a common thing that does occur, too, which should be mentioned. And that is that, at least it's this way in the state of Ohio, one of the easiest ways to remove an entire school board and all of the school board members, including sometimes the superintendent themselves, is to be a failing school district academically. If they grade poorly based on state standards, the State Department of Education will show up and they will clean house. They can move administrators around, they can fire administrators at will, and they can completely take over a school board. And they themselves, as State Department of Education employees, take over the school board and inhabit those positions themselves while the entire school board is is kicked out. And they can no longer run, by the way. I mean, they're basically told, don't ever run again for these positions. Um, you know, the, the, the way that you've acted and the things that you've done in the past will be used against you and, and so on and so forth. So academically failing schools are, are usually a, a, a very quick way of getting a State Department of Education to show up and just eliminate people and eliminate positions, wh- which is fine by me. I mean, I, I like that and that should happen. Uh, w- with all of the laws that have been broken here, over the last couple of years, again, regarding playing doctor and giving out medical advice and gagging children. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to read this because this is one of those things, again, that should be happening more often. So it says the following. It says, quote, a judge in Pennsylvania ordered to immediately remove from office the five school board members in Chester County School District who voted to make masks mandatory at the beginning of the school year. In February, the parents filed a petition asking the Chester County Court of Common Pleas to remove the five Democratic school boards, school board members. There's that word democratic again. It's Democrat. They're Democrats. They're not democratic. Ugh. Anyway, uh, to remove the school board members because they had voted to make masks mandatory in the school district last August of 2021. 
according to a report from WHYY Media. It says, quote, once the Supreme Court declared that it was unconstitutional, we implored our school board, we asked and asked and begged and pleaded and made comments to lift the mask mandate, and they refused, parent petitioner Rosisha said. No way I got that right. Uh, they continued to say when they refused, that is when we made the decision to file the petition, she added. And then more from that, it says the months-long dispute over masks in Chester County School District culminated Tuesday in a judge ordering all five Democrats on the school board to immediately be removed from office. After Pennsylvania's state of emergency first ended in June of 2021, the board opted to continue requiring masks. It stood by that decision while the state reimposed a school mask mandate and for two months after the Pennsylvania Supreme Court declared that mandate unconstitutional in December. In his order that the five Democratic members of the board be removed from office, quote-unquote, Judge William Mahone wrote that his decision came after there was no response to the petition by the school district or its counsel. In the motion to reconsider filed with the court, a copy of which WHYY obtained Wednesday, the attorneys argued that the deadline for the response was actually April 4th and and disputed the timeline used, which was based on the March 15th filing date of the petition to remove the school board members. The lawyers argued that the Pennsylvania statute in question gives the school directors no more than 20 days to respond. The motion asks that the court vacate the order, reinstate the school board members, school board directors, and allow the respondents until April 4th to file a written response to the petition. District leaders and the apparently ousted school board members did not respond to requests for comment. However, in a letter sent out to the district parents Tuesday night, Superintendent Robert Sokulski attempted to downplay any concern that the judge-ordered ousting of the board members would stick. Quote, The decision states that the removal of the board members named in the petition was a procedural result and does not address any of the allegations made in the complaint. Special counsel to the district is in the process of preparing a substantive response on behalf of those school board members named in the petition, the superintendent said. He acknowledged that he didn't have all the answers but would remain committed, quote-unquote, to education throughout the process. The superintendent concluded by saying that due to the ongoing nature of the situation, he would not be able to provide any additional comment for the time being. Judge Mahone gave both parties to the case seven days to submit the recommendations for replacement board members. He will make the final determination about who is appointed. Unquote. Now, I love this. I love this for a lot of reasons. Number one, how many schools do you know that have experienced the exact same thing and yet the school board members still remain? See, they were asked to legally remove the mask mandate because it's against the law. Statewide, against the law. Can't do it. Can't force the masks. And they just kept them in place anyway. See, this is, this is where parental follow-up really matters in, in, in instances like this. And, and thank God for the judge who actually is looking at the law and saying, yes, they're in direct violation. They've kept the masks in place. They aren't supposed to. It's a crime. And now we're going to hold them accountable. And the first thing to do is just remove them. It's, I mean, it's so simple, it's stupid, but it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. I'm, I'm glad that this has happened. And again, like I've said, in lockstep fashion, the school district lawyer is saying, no, 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 they can't do that. I mean, the, these district lawyers are disgusting. They're absolutely disgusting. These are the kinds of people, again, that are defending the drag queen story hour time and the LGBT whatever uh, alphabet soup, sti- you know, rainbow stickers on the doors and flags waving underneath or above the American flag outside of the school and so on and so forth. These are the lawyers that are defending all of that. And again, as I've said in the past, 
degenerate environments are going to hire degenerate lawyers to protect one another and the environment from outside moral influence to stop being degenerate environments. They're just showing their hands right now. These environments and the people who work within and the, and the entire administrative wing, so to speak, they're just showing their hands. They're showing everybody who they are, what they represent, what they stand for. Again, just like the whistleblower story, going after the best to demonize the best. When you do that, what, what remains? The exact opposite of that remains. If you're getting rid of the best, then you're keeping the worst. If you're keeping and protecting the worst, again, then what does that say about you and the larger environment? So, I don't know. It's an it's a action-reaction. It's just basic action-reaction. And speaking of action-reaction, here, here's the last education story I have here. Um, also awful. This comes from The Conversation. Theconversation.com. And it's titled, uh, the subtitle below this outlet is Academic Rigor with Journalistic Flair. So, yeah, not, uh, not sure how this is going to turn out, but um, this particular article is disgusting because of what's being promoted here. It's titled, quote, I no longer grade my students' work. I wish I had stopped sooner. And this is written by Elizabeth Grunner, or Gruner. Not sure how to spell that or pronounce that, rather. Uh, professor of English at the University of Richmond. And here's what she wrote. I got to tell you, you know, I hate to sound uh, superficial here, but sometimes you can just look at a person and you know their political persuasion. You know what I mean? You can just look at them and you're like, oh, no, this won't be good. So here's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. So here's what it says. It says, quote, I've been teaching college English for more than 30 years. Well, if that's true, then you should retire. Um, it, says the, it says the following. It says, four years ago, I stopped putting grades on written work, and it has transformed my teaching and my students' learning. My only regret is that I didn't do it sooner. Okay, see the first paragraph. No. You just got dumber and you got more lazy. That's all. That's all that means. It's not, it's not, there's no scientific analysis that needs to be done or academic papers that prove, you know, what it is that you've decided to do here. It, you've just gotten lazy. That's all. You're just sitting around talking with students and then checking off boxes that they did something. I don't know. It continues, and this is kind of lengthy, but trust me, it's worth it. Uh, it says, quote, starting in elementary school, teachers rate student work, sometimes with stars and check marks, sometimes with actual grades, usually by middle school, when most students are about 11. A system of grading is firmly in place. In the United States, the most common system is an A for superior work through F for failure, and E almost always skipped. Ha ha ha, that's funny. Anyway, it continues, and it says, This system was widely adopted only in the 1940s, and even now some schools, colleges, and universities use other means of assessing students. But the practice of grading and ranking students is so widespread as to seem necessary, even though many researchers say it's highly inequitable. Uh-oh, there's the first word, inequitable. It continues, it says, quote, For example, Students who come into a course with little prior knowledge earn lower grades at the start, which means they get a lower final average, even if they ultimately master the material. Grades have other problems. They are demotivating, they don't actually measure learning, and they increase students' stress. Here you go, because it's all about feelings now. It continues, and it says, During the pandemic, Many instructors and even whole institutions offered pass-fail options or mandated pass-fail grading. Now, I'm going to stop it there real quick. God, this is, this is just mind-numbing. The reason that they did that, offered pass-fail, was because everybody took a vacation. Everybody took a thinking vacation during, this, during that entire time with the online learning and the 
sometimes coming to class and sometimes not, it would have created way more work during the pseudo-vacation time that these quote-unquote educators were taking. I've said it before. You give an educator a snow day, they want 20. You give them an inch, they'll take a mile. You tell them they don't have to do their job all of the time, they're going to do whatever they have to do to not do their job all of the time. It's, uh, it's awful. Okay, so it continues. It says, they did so to reduce the stress of remote education and because they saw the emergency disruptive to everyone was disproportionately challenging for students of color. Many, however, later resumed grading, not acknowledging the ways that traditional assessment can both perpetuate inequity and impede learning. I'm starting to throw up in my mouth as I'm reading this. Sorry, it's a little graphic. It continues. It says, I started my journey toward what's... They're always taking a journey, too, aren't they? What, what is it with these journeys? I've never said that in my entire life. Not ever. I've, <laughs> I've, never, I've never used that phrase. This is my journey. I long and yearn for a journey. I've never said that. Who's, who says this? Leftist whack jobs. That's who. It, uh, okay, starting over. It says, I started my journey toward what's called ungrading, quote unquote, before the pandemic. Ungrading. In continuing it throughout, I have seen the effects which are likely which are like those observed by other researchers in the field. Okay. <laughs> I love the blanket statement of other researchers do it, so it must be logical. It continues. It says three reasons. I stopped putting grades on written work for three related reasons, all of which other professors have also cited as concerns. First, I wanted my students to focus on the feedback I provided on their writing. I had a sense, since backed up by research, that when I put a grade on a piece of writing, students focus solely on that, removing the grade for students to pay attention to my comments. Second, I was concerned with equity. Well, of course you were. It says, for almost 10 years, I have been studying inclusive pedagogy which focuses on ensuring that all students have the resources they need to learn. My studies confirmed my sense that sometimes what I was really grading was a student's background. Students with educational privilege came into my classroom already prepared to write A or B papers, while others often had the instruction that would, I'm sorry, while others had not had the instruction that would enable them to do so. The 14 weeks they spent in my class could not make up for the years of educational privilege their peers had enjoyed. Holy, holy God. Oh my God. You see, I'll tell you what. That right there, that sentence, those two sentences right there, exemplify the mind frame of these nutbags. 100%. 100%. It's impossible now for a person to be smarter than someone else. They just call it privilege. No, maybe they're just smarter. Maybe they just have, you know, an innate ability that some of your other students don't have. While some students are over here screwing around, doing God knows what in their spare time, maybe there are some other students over here who are, again, innately more intelligent. Maybe they read more. Maybe they write more. That's not privilege. It has nothing to do with that. I've met individuals, as I'm sure we all have, who are wealthy, come from very good families, and they are dumber than a bag of forks. That happens all of the time. So where's the privilege there? This is, this is disgusting. This professor is disgusting, but many of them are. It continues here, and it says, third, and I admit this is selfish. I hate grading. See, there it is. They just said it. This is why they don't grade. They just admitted it. Last paragraph of this short little section, I hate grading. There you go. 
which means everything else you're saying is just justifying you not liking to grade things anymore. It says, I love teaching, though, and giving students feedback is teaching. I'm happy to do it. Freed from the tyranny of determining a grade, I wrote meaningful comments, suggested improvements, asked questions, and entered into a dialogue with my students that felt more productive. That felt, in short, more like an extension of the classroom. Ugh, more feelings. It continues. So buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. It says it's called an ungrading, quote unquote. The practice that I adopted is not new and it's not my own. It's called ungrading, though that's not entirely accurate. At the end of the semester, I do have to give students grades as required by the university. Oh, what do you base those on then? It says, but I do not grade individual assignments. Instead, I give students extensive feedback and ample opportunity to revise. At the end of the semester, they submit a portfolio of revised work along with an essay reflecting on and evaluating their learning. Like most people who ungrade, I reserve the right to change the grade that students assign themselves in that evaluation. But I rarely do, and when I do, I raise grades almost as often as I lower them. Wow. Wow. Now I'm starting to get a headache. I mean, if we're just letting students grade themselves, what, what person is going to give themselves anything less than an A? I mean, that would be my first question in the class. I'd raise my, raise my hand and say, hi. Um, do, so we get to grade ourselves? Is, is that how this works? And they'd go, yes. And I'd say, mm, well, in that case, I give myself an A. And I give myself an A right now on day one. And then I'd say, do I have to show up anymore? I mean, this is, these people are lunatics. They're just lunatics. And they're lazy. And they're showing that to everybody. They're showing that to everyone. I mean, reading this, again, is just is physically painful for me. Uh, let's see. It says, the first class I ungraded was incredulous. After I explained the theory and the method, they peppered me with many of the questions that other ungraders have also faced. Quote, if we ask you, will you tell us what grade we have on a paper? No, I answered because I really haven't, I really won't have put a grade on it. And then it says, quote, if we decide halfway through the semester that we're, that we're done revising something, will you grade it then? They responded, no, again, because I'm grading an entire portfolio, not individual pieces. And then they said, quote, will you tell me where I stand, quote, unquote. The students are asking these questions. And then she says, my, con my comments on your work and our conferences should give you a good sense of how you're progressing in the class. As for motivation, I asked them, what do you want to learn? Why are you here? Like most college professors, I teach classes across the curriculum, but I started my ungrading journey. There's the journey again. In classes, and student, in classes that students were taking to fulfill basic graduation requirements, they were stopped short by the question. They wanted a good grade and fair enough. That is the currency of the institution. As we talked, though, we uncovered other motivations. Some took my children's literature class because they thought it would be a fun or easy way to fulfill the requirement. They confessed, sometimes reluctantly, to anxieties about reading, about writing. They weren't confident in their skills, didn't think they could improve. These were exactly the students I was hoping to reach. Without putting grades on their work, I hoped, like my fellow ungrader, Heather Maselli, who teaches general science courses to college students, that these less confident students would see that they could improve, could develop their skills, and meet their own goals. In my more advanced courses, students had an easier time identifying content-related goals, but I have also found surprisingly similar results in their reflections. They, too, want to overcome anxieties about speaking in class, concerns that they aren't as prepared as their classmates, 
fears that they can't keep up. And then it says, how did it go? Wow. That first semester, students participated in class, did the readings, and wrote the papers, wrote their papers. I read and commented on them, and if they chose to, they revised as often as they wanted. At the end of the semester, when, the, when they submitted portfolios for, uh, of their revised work, their reflections on the process and assessments of their learning tracked closely with my own. Most recognized their growth, and I concurred. One student, a senior, thanked me for treating them like adults. As for my interest in equity, I found that students who were less prepared did indeed develop their skills. Their growth was substantial, and both they and I recognized it. Well, isn't that special? Because that's what's supposed to happen in a classroom. Just by being there, they're supposed to get smarter, not dumber. But unfortunately, with these strategies, it's just teaching them a horrible, horrible lesson that is going to backfire on them in the real world. It continues, unfortunately, and it says, The system takes time to implement, and I've revised it over the years. When I began, I was, I was inexperienced at coaching students to develop their own goals for the course, at helping them to reflect and at guiding them to think about assessment in terms of their own development rather than following a rubric. And I have found that students need time to reflect on their own goals for the class at the outset, at a midpoint, and again at the end of the semester so they can actually see how they've developed. They need encouragement to revise their work as well. My comments help, but do so, but so do pointed reminders that the process of learning involves revision and the course is set up to enable it. Students in the introductory classes require a bit more direction in this work than advanced students, but most eventually take the opportunity to revise and reflect. Now I see students from all backgrounds recognizing their own growth, whatever their starting point. They benefit from my coaching, but perhaps even more so from the freedom to decide for themselves what really matters in their reading and writing. And I benefit, too, from the opportunity to help them learn and grow without the tyranny of the grade, unquote. I lost at least 10 IQ points reading that. But this, again, is the larger point in the larger picture of how awful these environments are. And it's worth noting, the vast majority of college and university professors have never been teachers formally before they take the position of teaching. They are not former K-12 teachers within these university environments. Only those within the teacher education profession tend to be actual former K-12 school teachers, which means for the very first time as a student, you're sitting in front of or yeah, you're sitting in front of, in a, in a college or university classroom setting, in front of an individual who's calling themselves a professor, and yet they've never taught a day in their life. They may or may not know their subject matter, but they are not a formal instructor. They do not have classroom management skills, typically. They do not know how to organize material, typically, let alone deliver it and have again, classroom management skills on how to communicate with students. Now, it's not all of them. You know, there are some excellent professors out there, of course, who have never taught a day of K-12 school in their life, and that's great, and I know that they exist. But the vast majority, again, come in as a subject-specific individual, and then they attempt to teach said subject to a group of people who, again, students, typically don't understand that the person who's in front of them, their professor, has really never spent a lot of time actually teaching. That's why you end up with professors like this who have been around for 30 plus years and are all of a sudden saying, I don't like grading. I don't want to do it anymore. It's not fair to people because some people know more than others and grading's not fair. It's laziness. It's the fastest way to describe it. It's just flat out lazy. 
And again, if this person has been teaching college English for more than 30 years, it's time for them to hang it up. Just go away. That's all. Retire. Go do something else. Starbucks needs employees too. Uh, yeah, it's awful. Absolutely awful. Okay, shifting gears here. Jab-related stuff. Um, very briefly, I want to mention this. Dr. Sherry Tenpenny was on Alex Jones the other day, and I listened to a, a portion of it. And right at the very beginning, here's what she said, because she was asked by Alex Jones about what, you know, what do you see coming? What, uh, what's coming down the line here? And here's what she said, and it's worth keeping an eye on, clearly. Um, she stated that hemorrhagic fever is going to start being normalized including Ebola. And what they're probably going to do, and by they I mean the enemy powers that be, that they're going to start to roll out this scare tactic, and then they're going to tell the general public, don't worry, we have a vaccination for you. But you cannot receive that vaccination unless you have COVID shots. So Using the COVID shots again as a blackmail tool or uh, some kind of bribery scheme, more coercion clearly, in order to again get individuals jabbed with as many things as humanly possible to wipe them out. That's, that's essentially it. I think they're going to, I agree with her. I think they're going to continue to play that card as much as they can because they're, they're running out of cards to play. So, that's worth keeping in mind going forward, I think. Now, here's the piece of audio I want to play, and it's Dr. Sukrit Bhakti. And I love this guy. Um, I've been listening to this man for a very long time here since this entire thing rolled out over the last couple of years. And uh, it, it, this comes from, let me see here, it comes from Rumble, and it comes from the channel Refuge of Sinners. And uh, Dr. Bhakti has a medical degree, and he's a professor of biology and has published over 300 articles in the field of immunology, bacteriology, virology, and parasitology. He's chaired the Institute of Medical Microbiology and Hygiene at the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, Germany, if I'm saying that right, from 1990 until his retirement in 2012. I'm just going to kind of let this play here. Uh, he brings up a number of different things. He starts talking about blood clotting a little bit. And then again, he talks about What's going to happen with these people? Uh, in particular, the individuals that have perpetuated this crime this entire time. Ignorance here is not going to be an excuse, essentially. And um, I'm just going to let it roll. So give this a listen. And again, I greatly admire this man. As I, think, uh, I think you talked to John O'Rooney. Uh, yes. Yes. And I think he talked to you about this uh, white clots that you found, right? Mm -hmm. Do you know what those white clots are? No. Those white clots, well, I'll tell you. There are two types of clots, red clots, which are normal clots, and white clots that are platelet-rich. They are full of platelets, and the, it's the platelets that give them the white color. Now, uh, white clots always form in living people. Red clots can form after you die. You know, hours after death, the blood clots. And those clots are red because they're normal. But if white clots form, it means that the platelets have been activated. And you can only activate platelets if you are living, all right? So what John O'Looney is showing the world is that people have clots forming in their living bodies. What a horrible thought. You know, and they, they form all over the place in your body in the small vessels, and they will never be seen by clinicians because you can't find those clots. They're too small. And now, you know, I get into a rage when I talk about this. People are tampering with God's work, mm. and they, as they continue to do so, without, you know, I'm a Buddhist. The Buddhists say, if you do good, you will reap. If you do evil, you will cry. And you, Christians, say, if you do this, you are going to go to hell, and you're going to stay in hell. And I tell you, if there is a hell, you guys 
but behind this whole agenda are all going there. We don't have to do anything. You just wait until your time has come. And this is what I said in my last important closing talk. Mm -hmm. I think in my closing words, you are going to now become the hunter, you, the perpetrators, and you who have been hunting us are going to be hunted now because the world is going to realize what you have been doing. And there is no excuse for this. Either you turn back now or it's going to be too late. And uh, that time is approaching. I just wanted um, to point out with those, um, the 15 um, patients that originally that Dr. Burkhart worked with, um, it was all four of the gene therapy vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, and AstraZeneca. Oh, yeah. And sure. some, some had only had one shot. Right. Very well, good. You really... Yeah. I have got it in front of me. <laughs> I've got it in front yes. of me, so, yeah, which is alarming. And, and, and um, what I wanted to say to you is... Um, have you ever seen anything like this before where the lymphocytes um, attack your own body like this? Well, well yes, yes. Well, this is, this is actually typical of autoimmune disease, all oh. right? So you have autoimmune hepatitis, then you have the lymphocytes attacking. But what you do not have in autoimmune disease is you don't have the heart and the liver being attacked in the same person. All right, and this this combination of of different organs, different sites, uh, having immune attack on the vessels and the and the surrounding tissues is unique. It has never been seen in medicine, and that is why we know that it must be the vaccine. Throughout that particular interview, too, he continues to just be remarkably disappointed and perplexed at the number of individuals that are still receiving these shots. Again, they must be just glued to their televisions all of the time. They must just live in a particular bubble where they're just believing everything that they're hearing regarding any benefits when there is zero benefit. Again, that's brainwashing on a completely separate level there. But you can clearly detect Dr. Bhakti's uh, disappointment and frustration with countless individuals that just are not seeing what's going on here. And um, yeah, you can tell he's beyond frustrated in a lot of the things that he's discussing, but there is that. And again, this is something that is so unique that it's never again, as he even stated, has never been seen in medicine before. Again, in autoimmune conditions, Maybe one particular body system will be attacked, or maybe two, but not every body system um, at the exact same time within the same person. That's that's alarming stuff. So here's the last thing I want to read. And again, this is shifting gears uh, as well. But as we all know, sort of Disney has been in the news as of late because all of their employees have sort of come out of the closet, so to speak. And... Uh, are responsible for, of course, pushing their satanic and perverted agenda. People need to understand the history of Disney, and I think that that is worth bringing up and worth mentioning. So here, here's a particular book, again, that I've referenced in the past and, and made mention of in the past, and it's a book titled The Bloodlines of the Illuminati, or Bloodlines of the Illuminati, rather, by Fritz Springmeier. Um, I, I read this book again. It's free PDF download. You can you can download it right off the internet for nothing. It's in fact even on the CIA's website and the FBI's website. Uh, oddly enough, um, I'm not sure why they have it on their site. Whether they're trying to point out that it might be disinformation or whatever. But I got to tell you, I read this back in graduate school and I could not put it down. I couldn't stop reading it. It is beyond frightening. It goes through multiple families and family bloodlines and and the both incestuous nature of these particular families but then again their more nefarious backgrounds and the things that they've done and the things that they still do the money they have the things they control etc cetera, etc cetera. but um i want to say at least the last 
40 some odd pages are all about Disney. And I just want to read a particular part here. It's on page 211. And a few pages before it is where the Disney, um, the actual Disney chapters begins. But this particular section is titled An Overview. So I'm going to give this kind of a quick read here. It's just a, about a page and a half. Although, again, there's at least 40 pages on Disney. So here we go. It says, quote, Disneyland and Disney World are f- world famous and the pride of America. They are also extremely important programming centers for the Illuminati to create total mind-controlled slaves. Disneyland is also involved with providing a place for rituals, porn, and other satanic activities. In terms of deception, Disney movies and Disney amusement parks rate as one of the best deceptions. According to deprogrammed ex-Illuminati slaves, the Illuminati in the 1960s needed to shift their programming away from the military bases because too much publicity or heat was shined on the military bases. Their goal was to have some place that people from all over the world could come to without raising any suspicions and a place which would be perfect, be the perfect cover rather, for many of their criminal activities. According to a witness, the Illuminati programmers got a big laugh out of using Disneyland as their major Illuminati base for criminal activity. Under the disguise of entertaining the world, they carried out money laundering, child slavery laundering, and mind control. They nicknamed Disneyland the little syndicate of mind control, quote-unquote. When a child of three or four was kidnapped, they would torture the child and put them on a ride such as the Ferris wheel, such as a Ferris wheel or a carousel, that A, created disassociation from the pain, while also B, going along with some fairy tale programming script. An abducted child while waiting to be picked up from one of the Illuminati non-parent caretaker by another could be kept happy and distracted while waiting for the pickup. For years, Disneyland was an Illuminati center for many of their worldwide activities. Now Disney has created other sites around the world such as Euro Disneyland, 20 miles east of Paris, and Tokyo Disneyland. Tokyo Disneyland in 1991 had 16 million people attend. With such huge crowds, it doesn't take much imagination how the Illuminati have been able to sneak, to do sneaky criminal activities right in front of people, and the public never sees it, in the middle of the activity. Euro Disney has been a money-losing affair, but the Saudis who benefit from its mind control gave Disney the money to keep it financially in business. Walt Disney Records is the largest children's record label in the world. Disney, through their movies, books, toys, records, etc., has made a tremendous impact on the children of the world. Their movie return from Witch's Mountain was one of the most powerful witchcraft promotions ever made. DuckTales, which has deliberate monarch mind control triggers written into the script, is also broadcast in Poland and the former USSR. From the time of the Roman Empire, at least if not before, the oligarchical leadership who have been in control of both the mystery religions and European aristocracy have known about bread and circus. Bread and circus refers to the concept that if the masses of people are given entertainment and food staples, then they are easy to control. Walt Disney movies have played a key role in providing entertainment for the masses to ensure Illuminati control. Walt Disney's friends, the Masonic prophet H.G. Wells, in his book A Modern Utopia, that there would be lots of shows in the New World Order. The World Future Society, in a book review in their publication Future Survey Annual, 1993 edition, uh, Michael Marin, Bethesda, M.D., World Future Society, page 9, describes Disney, quote, control of commodities such as entertainment and access to commodities translates into control over people. The postmodern U.S. in a massive rush of disconnected commodities, each seeking a moment of our attention, quote, unquote. The world of commodities is our soma. The entertainment is the current form of public discourse.
Walt Disney World spread over 27,400 acres of Central Florida swamp and scrub forest is the most ideological important piece of land in the U.S. What goes on here is the quintessence of the American way. It is visited by over 30 million people a year. Not only the major middle class pilgrimage center in the U.S., but by far the most important entertainment center in the world. It is clearly Oz, utopia as a marketing device, unquote. Two Disney brothers, Walt, Walter Elias, and Roy O. Disney, have been at the center of the creation of the amusement parks and popular Disney films. In more recent times, two other men, Eisner and Katzenberg, have been notable at Disney. Eisner and Katzenberg, as well as others, will be discussed later. One of Disney's directors, Victor Salva, was convicted of molesting a boy and filming one of the sexual molestations. Recently, Disney director Salva produced the Disney movie Powder. Victor Salva's sexual molestation conviction was covered by newspaper articles such as Robert W. Welkos of the L.A. Times in newspapers such as The Oregonian, Wednesday, October 25, 1995. A section. The impact of the Disney Brothers is monumental. Mickey Mouse t-shirts can be seen being worn by natives all over the world. Disney World and Disneyland are the quest for a large segment of humanity, who often esteem these amusement parks as the highlight of their life. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God according to the Word of God. The Bible arbitrarily makes this claim, but sadly, research by this author over the years proves that a close examination of Disney and mankind's esteem for Disney things does vindicate the biblical expectation. In other words, as readers of this article will find out, behind the appearance of wholesomeness of the Disney brothers and their creations lays abominations. Some of the most grotesque aspects of generational occultism the world has ever seen. Disney's magic kingdom has become an American institution that impacts people all over the world from cradle to grave. Unquote. I'm going to link the website where you can download this PDF for free. Again, I believe that the Disney chapter starts on page 202 if you're interested in just reading that. However, I recommend you read the entire thing. I'm telling you, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you to put it down once you start reading it because it really is frightening. And it's interesting as well. And, and I got to tell you, it's one of those history lessons you're never going to learn in school. And for me, that's always worth it. Um, and again, people can say whatever they'd like about it. They can try to discredit it if they want. But it requires an open mind and a mind that's willing to learn in order to, uh, oh, I would say, improve ourselves by, of course, examining the truth of the world that we really live in. Not to mention, based on current events here, it really begs the question, what is the future of Disney? What is the future of this company? Uh, again, they've come out as as being pedophiles. They have a history of pedophilia. They have a history of mind control. They have a history of child trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. And now they're basically bragging about it in their own ways. So it really does, again, bring to the forefront what is it that this company actually thinks that they're going to get away with and what's actually going to happen to them. Could they get wrapped up in a, in a, RICO, in a RICO case, in a RICO criminal case? I think they could. I mean, they've been engaging in worldwide crimes since their inception. So I, I got to tell you, a world without Disney would be 100% fine with me. I'd be 100% okay with it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, lots of, lots of information, a uh, lot going on this week. But uh, have a great weekend, and I'll catch you on Monday. Take care. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.